ASI, it's that time of year again. to the ASI podcast. Uh, my email address is russ at asi247.org. The website is, you guessed it, asi247.org. Um, I know, who emails nowadays, right? It's like Twitter and Facebook. All the links to that stuff are on the website. My Twitter handle is at Russ Shaw, all one word. That's three S's, by the way. Yes, it is. And my Facebook is a, it's a like button on the page, on the ASI247.org page. So you can click on that if you like, if you want to like me. Um, that's how that's done. Uh, getting some of that out of the way, I'm doing SoundCloud now. I'm not putting all the episodes on SoundCloud. They don't give you a lot of space. SoundCloud is picky about my bumper music, like the the machine that filters whether you're uploading copyrighted content or not, does not understand um, the talk radius, radio, right, speech media rule when it comes to bumper promo music that we have here in the United States. So, uh, and I'll say that again on this podcast, just so you know, I I do bumper promos on the show of music, right? Like talk radio or sometimes news programs will have a little a little promo bumper to to you know to show you what I mean. It's just music that goes with the podcast or the show or the radio, right? And and you uh, you can download this this content on the website asi247.org. You can click on the music tab and download the songs that I, I do play here on the podcast. I, I play small snippets of it. Um, it used to be only 30 seconds you can use, but iTunes has pushed that up to uh, a minute 40, something like that. It's a certain percentage of the song. So that's my legal requirement under the law is to tell you that um, I, I play bumper promos. So, yes, that's the big news. Uh, SoundCloud. ASI is now on SoundCloud. Why? Uh, as a guy who uses Twitter kind of frequently, I've noticed that uh, SoundCloud, when I check trending topics in the United States, is usually trending, like daily. So uh, I thought it was a good opportunity. SoundCloud is, if you don't know, it's an app for your phone or your tablet or your computer. And it's kind of like Instagram for noise, right? (laughs) So you can follow people and uh, trade sounds and stuff, music, a lot of musicians on there and people who are selling audio books, that kind of thing. But yes, you can follow me on SoundCloud, Russ247. So, there's that. It's a contagion, invasion, rampaging. We know facts and things that down. Coming out of the ground, looks like it's getting around. Virus apocalyptic, most about this, you can't music to make you come alive. <laughs> it's the uh, reanimated album the zombie song is that uh, that one by yes, Family Force 5. Anyway, uh, so every so often, I haven't done one of these every year, but um, when I do a Halloween edition of the ASI podcast, I usually get um, like a well-meaning Christian type who will take issue with uh, 
Christians celebrating or being involved in uh, taking part in Halloween as a you know, as a holiday. And rather than go through, you know, like I do on every show, um, my issue, my, the way I think about that, um, you can go back and listen to some of those shows and I kind of unpack, um, what it means to be a Christian for me and, uh, redeeming Halloween, right? There's a, there's a difference between embracing Halloween and redeeming it. All right. From a from a Christian perspective, okay, I'll 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 address a little bit of this. Okay, um, this is one time a year in our culture as a cultural thing. You know, churches will do like a harvest festival or a you know a fall festival, and basically, you know, you'll have kids trunk or treat, right? They trick or treat around the church parking lot out of the trunks of cars while they dress up and and do the exact same thing the rest of the culture's doing while you know <laughs> like listen this is a good opportunity to meet your neighbors for one thing all right here's here's three things that i feel we can do as christians to to redeem the holiday if you want to uh take issue with me on this all right Number one, uh, there was a survey done by State Farm Insurance. This is a news story in my country uh, about a month ago. And they asked about a bunch of, like, thousands of Americans, um, how many of you know your neighbor? And about 50% of us knew our neighbor's name, right? Uh, if you, you could be broke down by age group. So... People between the ages of 18 to 34, it was like 38%, 36% or something like that, knew their neighbor's name. All right? Jesus says, love thy neighbor. Why don't you, I mean, this is a good opportunity to, to meet your neighbor, build some community. All right? So, so that's one way you can to redeem Halloween rather than embrace it. You know, uh, to take the plank out of your your eye, right, and, and and give the neighbor kid who's dressed up like a ninja in a, in a big fur coat, right, a big <laughs> ski jacket, um, give him a Snickers fun-size bar, right? Give him a peanut butter cup. I mean, for crying out loud, why don't you love your neighbor for a chance? I mean, that's just me, all right? I'll, I'll talk about this as my active worship in, in celebrating this little harvest season towards God is is number one. It's an opportunity for me to um, get to know the neighbors. Um, and that takes a little bit more than just go letting your kids go up and trick-or-treat. It takes, hey, I'm Russ. I live, a, you know, two block, two houses down. I uh, just wanted to introduce myself. And it takes a little bit of work, but it's worth it because, you know, something goes wrong. Why do you think an insurance company did this survey, right? Because people who know their neighbors are a lot less likely to have their house broke into or something going wrong, you know? Uh, anyway, that was a bunch of stuff in this survey. It's pretty interesting. Uh, something like 48% or 46% of homeowners actually asked a neighbor to watch their house while they're on vacation, that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of different stats. I can't remember them right off hand, but interesting. Number two, uh, carving a pumpkin, all right? One of the things I like to think about in, in carving a pumpkin is the fact that, you know, it's kind of like my life a little bit. Like, God loves me, pulled me up out of this mucky, mire thing I was I was in and, and pulled, you know, cut the top off my life and, and pulled all the smelly orange gunk out and, and placed his candle inside, right? It's just something I like to think about. It's a beautiful metaphor for the Holy Spirit kind of a thing, right? Um, another one is uh, there's the, we celebrate death, right, a little bit. This is the one holiday where you're going to see skeletons and you're going to see, you know, little graveyards and graves and, you know, uh, vampires and zombies, right? And, and uh, I think that's not such a bad thing to think about death. I heard a guy talking about, a um, sociologist who was talking about, uh, he was trying to find things that people in community, in families, needed to talk about but usually don't, right? Um, and he started, uh, he started this thing called death dinners, where 
we're going to have, I don't know if this would be appropriate during Halloween or not, but it sounds like a great idea where you invite your family over and, okay, we're going to talk about what's going to happen when I die or when you die or when grandpa dies. Uh, not necessarily a will thing and who's going to get the boat or the house, but, you know, just having a plan because we're not going to get out of this alive. All of us aren't going to get out of this alive. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing about death is there is things in me that need to die, right? Like I got bad habits. I'm being progress. I'm going through progressive sanctification, right? And, uh, there's, there's just things in me that I don't mind seeing die away. Um, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. And in order for news to be good, it has to enter into bad, right? In order for a light to fill a room, the, the light that needs to flood that room, right? If there's darkness... Light will flood the, the area. Um, darkness can't overtake light. It says that in First John, or John chapter 1, just kicking off that book, is, is, is the fact that, yeah, darkness can't flood out light, but light does flood out darkness. And good news, in order for news to be good, it has to enter into a dark place and fill it with light. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does, because this is episode 26 of the ASI podcast, season 3, Zombies, Vampires, Sex, and Juxtaposed Worldviews is the title of this show. I'm going to read a, a letter from a listener. I, I don't normally do that. I usually answer email on the show with the topic or with what I talk about, this email was so well written and it's so honest and raw and I've got versions of it several times over the years, um, but the way Mr. E, we'll call him, uh, wrote this email, uh, just, um, anyhow, I'll just read it. Uh, I, and I do have the emailer's permission too, by the way, I wouldn't just, <laughs> I don't just read people's deep uh, stuff without uh, getting their permission while I have uh, kept his name anonymous uh, here, here we go I'm 22 and married and I've been struggling a lot with porn addiction I've been taking some steps towards being cleaned and right now I'm two days clean thank God for two days right two days is good this is how it works, man. Anyway, back to the back to the letter. Your show has given me encouragement, so thank you. However, I greatly suffer from battling this one particular thought. I find myself spotting a beautiful girl and wondering if I'd be better off ending my marriage to pursue my lusts. Sometimes when I try to sleep, I think of the opportunities to have sex with certain girls that I turn down and regret it and wonder if I should try and experience that. I love my wife. We communicate well and we are amazing friends. But sometimes I wonder if I'd be happier or just better off pursuing my lusts or marrying someone with a high sex drive that looks like some of the girls that I've had opportunities with. I'm a Christian, so I know that what Jesus said about marriage and how it's an image of Christ's love and his church. I guess I find myself torn between two masters and I'm trying to fight becoming the lukewarm Christian that he warns us about. I don't care what to... Uh, wait, hold on, sorry. <laughs> IDK, I don't care what to some about this issue. They've been nagging thoughts everywhere and I don't want to do. Sorry about the vent. I just haven't been able to share this with anyone. Thank you. Mr. E. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff here. My first reaction to reading that letter was the feeling of wow, right? Like this is just 
raw, honest, where a guy is at. You know, the, the thoughts that are being thrown into his mind. And uh, thank you, Mr. E, for, for letting me read that on the podcast. I'll tell you a, a little story from my, my own life. Um, I was, you know, when the porn addiction got progressive, you know, the way I was handling my, my addiction to pornography by myself, on my own, wasn't working, and it, and it just kept getting progressive. So, um, I started seeing prostitutes um, around the year 2000. I didn't, I didn't admit that or confess that until episode 40 of this podcast. So, if you heard some of the early episodes, you hear me talking about my porn addiction, which was very, very sticky, and which, you know, it, it was fueled me doing other things. But, uh, yeah, episode 40, I, you, that, that episode was tough. Um, I, I did that episode after I had confessed everything to my wife, to the church I was going to at the time. And, uh, it, it was, it was a bloody mess. And after episode 40, the podcast went silent for almost a year. Um, but while while I was doing the seeing prostitutes, it was the the thought kept coming to my mind. A couple of different thoughts kept coming to my mind, but one that uh, one that really intersects with Mister E's letter was the thought that I would get into the porn business. Because I had some semblance of technological skill, and I knew, because of my job, um, I wasn't just another John to some of the the gals that I knew. Uh, I was kind of the friendly guy, and I thought, you know, the the tempting thought that kept entering my mind was to just leave my family and start my own little porn business. I love my wife, you know, that's another thing that he said in that letter. A lot of folks reading that or hearing that letter that don't know sexual addiction would hear that and say, you don't love your wife. You don't love your wife, Russ. Why would you be doing the things that you did if you loved your wife? Um, Exactly, right? Part of my recovery was redefining what it meant to love my wife. by the grace of God and a lot of grace and love from my wife that I don't deserve, frankly. Um, through a lot of recovery in my life. and uh, We're still married. And people also, he says in that letter, he's, he's 22 and married. A lot of folks will say, oh, that's too young. Uh, I got married when I was 20. I sowed wild oats before that. You know, some people think that, you know, oh, well, you got to sow your wild oats and then get married. You know, being promiscuous before you're married is, it's it's like an internship for being a, a an adulterer. All right? That's why I, I, my passion to do this show is you, you got to, you got to have a plan. Don't let this thing rule your life. It will keep taking over. It will progressively want to take more ground in your life, in your identity. And you can fight those tempting thoughts. 2 Corinthians uh, 10.5 says uh, that we demolish arguments that are against God, right? everything that sets itself up that's against God's will in our lives it, it's taking those thoughts captive to to obedience to Christ um, but that takes some unpacking right what is it what does it mean to take every thought captive a lot of the, the biggest discipline the biggest 
a man out of the house. I've told guys so many times, the biggest discipline in getting some real victory over sexual addiction in my life was my thought life. Just getting good at kicking out those thoughts, not letting them um, start making movies in my mind, or not letting my imagination. I, I've got a quick mind, and I'm a pretty creative kind of guy, and and I can think up little stories in my head, and it's it's getting good at stopping that stuff and not letting my mind dwell on it, because you know that part of the scripture that talks about you know, surrendering our thoughts and taking them captive to obedience to Christ. The facts are that we will be obedient to something. We are uh, creatures of appetite, uh, creatures of desire. Um, a, f a few years ago, I did a show on vampires, right? I, I talked about the historical... You know, I had a little theory that I, I brought with some history um, around the book uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker. Now, the, the vampire myth had been around before Bram Stoker, but um, Bram Stoker gave the, the vampire myth uh, a personality, right? He set up rules for the vampire and, and how they operate and what happens when you are a vampire and how you relate to the world. I set up a little theory in the fact that I believe that Bram Stoker was a Christian, probably Catholic. He, uh, he was a playwright. He worked in a theater. And he wrote this story based on what if... Let me throw this what if at you. And this is kind of what I talked about in that episode. Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, had come out... Uh, about 30 years earlier. Actually, that's not what the original title was. Uh, I can't totally remember the original title, but if you go back and listen to that show, I get into it. Um, the worldview that Darwin had brought up to light had started to gain a lot of ground in the, that time, around the 1870s, 1880s, when uh, when when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. There was no other competing worldview. Alright? Does that make sense? To theology. The theological way of thinking about the world, the theological worldview, was just how most people thought at that time. When Darwin came around, he, you know, had people thinking about, well, what if we evolved from... Uh, primordial goo and we are you know our ancient ancestors are monkeys and and so he had folks thinking about this so it was a it was juxtaposed juxtaposed right that word juxtaposed worldview to a theological world, worldview that says that there is a God and that we are responsible for the things we do while we're alive on this planet that we we all have a relationship with God in one way or another and that he loves his children. He's seeking us out, right? C.S. Lewis writes this book, The Great Divorce, which I love. It's a, it's a picture of uh, the divorce of heaven and hell and the human heart. See, before Darwin, there was no competing intellectual thought around how we got here, how we solve our love relationships, how we deal, you know, and live in, in life. It was all theological. And Darwin's book, right, Darwin's worldview started to gain ground. And here comes the artists, right? I love that about this time in human history. The artists come up with a competing thought, all right? Bram Stoker writes Dracula, gives some of these grim tales, new life, you know, new meaning. The werewolf metaphor, right? You're, we're animal creatures and, and fighting this thing. Like all of a sudden I'm taken over by this animal thing in me. But you get what I'm saying, right? Like, here's two competing worldviews that are just juxtaposed to one another. And this is where we really have to go out on faith. 
I'm a premise guy. I get in these arguments with atheists every so often, and and I'm just kind of like, you know, if we argue for a while, I mean, you can point to science. Well, you believe in religion, and I believe in science. No, actually, I believe in science, too. And you can't prove it. You can't prove that we had evolved from monkeys, and I can't prove that there's a God. So guess what? We both live our lives on faith, don't we? All right. Again, premise. Where's the premise? Uh, there was a big bang, Russ. And this big bang set this whole thing in motion. Okay, well, where did that come from? If you want to talk about evolution, C.S. Lewis believed that, you know, we evolved like a lot of uh, atheists believe. But he also believed that, you know, he believed the book of Genesis was also totally true. But more in the realm of metaphor, that God was telling us, you know, speaking baby talk to us so that we could understand. Um, that's not my worldview. I, I don't believe that. I believe that, you know, <laughs> my faith has me not stretch when it comes to uh, how God created the world. But, I don't, I, again, I don't want to get into that as much as I want to talk about the, these juxtaposed worldviews. And how every single one of us are in a kind of battle, right? In a sort of war that's going on in our heads. So I wanted to bring um, the metaphor a little more up to date. Bring it up to the 20th century. And talk about this guy Sigmund Freud. Um, a lot of secular secularists... Um, People writing about the secularized culture, that uh, postmodernism, that's where we live today here in the West, um, the post-Christian kind of culture. Most folks in you know census are, are filling out and talking about how they are. Um, they don't check a religion box, you know. They just a lot of people are spiritual. Like we don't have a lot of atheists. Um, Despite the movement of the new atheists, they're not getting a lot of converts. But we do have a lot of folks who believe in a kind of a vague religion. Like, God is just, you know, this magical force in the sky or something, right? Like, God is just love, man, you know. Uh, and as a way of figuring out and, you know, trying to <laughs> make sense of of this broken, messed up world, we have looked to uh, Sigmund Freud. I use Freud. There's a lot of, you know, Aldler, there's Carl, you know, Rogers. There's a bunch of grandfathers of modern psychology today. But we look to those guys to kind of solve how we, how we see the world, right? Um, and I think this goes back to the Puritans. If you go back to the Puritans, and you know you can trace them all the way back to the Pilgrims. But the Puritans had a had this, hey, we're going to take on lust, and we're going to be good people, and we're going to really love God with our behavior. And while all that's well and good, if you had someone like myself, right, that struggled with uh, sexual addiction, for example, or you know was honest about their their life and their thoughts and their, you know, habits of maybe habitual masturbation. And they brought that to the Puritan and the Puritan would say, well, just stop lusting. You just need to knock that off and stop lusting. That's a lot about my story. You know, I'm like, okay, how do I do that? Going to the church and the church did not have a lot of answers for me. So, you know, what happens in human history, and using in my country, um, the West has... Anyway, I won't get into that. So if you look at the anthropology or the social psychology of the West, a lot of the framework of, of us getting to this place of a, a secularized kind of culture, to use that word, a lot of this has to do with us gleaning information from atheist <laughs> psychologists. Not that some of the stuff that they said is bad. I'm going to use Freud as, as my major example. Um, Freud said a lot of stuff that's true. Freud, you know, touched on and found out. I See, 
Here's the deal, too. Um, if you're listening to the show, a lot of you think that I may be an integrationist because I talk about psychology. An integrationist is someone who brings in some psychological stuff, right? We learn some psychological tools, and we try and implement that as a Christian in teaching the Bible or teaching folks how to live a constructive life, right? So that's integrationist. Um, I would consider myself a dispensationalist, and, and I've been talking about this since the early shows, that I believe that truth, absolute truth, is, is in God, that God knows everything, and that the only way I can get any sort of understanding or any sort of firm grip on truth is to learn about God and to learn about His nature and, and how He does things and learn about His Word. And the more I get to know God, the more I get to know truth, all right? And truth is that some of the stuff that Freud talks about, I mean, we can pull up scriptures for. I can point out in the Bible where, yeah, that's, that's something that people do. That is absolutely true. But the roots of what Freud believes, I totally am vehemently against. I, I'm not an atheist. A lot of Freud... And, man, whether you like it or not, there's a lot of colleges that say, oh, yeah, we don't teach Freud. And But a lot of today's psychology is still based around the teachings of Freud. One of the biggest things that Freud believed about our the battle that we have in our head, right? Because, you know, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to bait and switch you, all right? What I'm setting up here is to show the, the kind of vampire in the thinking of, of Freud at, at his roots, all right? Some of this zombie-like, us feeding off other people, thinking that we're going to, you know, that that's, oh, I'm hungry, I need to devour another person. There's, there's a good metaphor in that when it comes to sexual addiction, right? Galatians 5.17, this is from the ESV. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want. Alright, that is a beautiful picture of uh, the struggle that we're all in as human beings. It's it's part of the, the human experience, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said that we're like a, we're half-breed spirit animal creatures. Half-animal because we live here in time and space. And we need, like the animals do, food, water, sex to survive. Spirit because our spirits are eternal. That uh, the, the energy that we carry will go on forever. Um, it's a pretty sobering thought. It's not a thought that Sigmund Freud would agree with. So Sigmund Freud, in his um, synopsis of that scripture, the way that, that Sigmund Freud solves this dilemma, this, you know, animal spirit thing that we all have, is he doesn't believe we're spirit. He actually believes that we're animals with uh, voracious sexual appetites and, and that we, you know, shove down, repress our sexual thoughts and our sexual lusts because we live with other people in a culture that has to um, maintain some kind of order, right? So, so that's Sigmund Freud's belief, is that at the roots of us is, a, is an animal lust to that the three layers of identity isn't mind, body, spirit. It's um, lizard brain, monkey brain, <laughs> and then the top layer, which is the, the human being that we are in our emotions and trying to just keep all of this animal stuff that's under the surface, just keep it at bay. So, we go back to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker, who is unpacking a worldview, 
that says, okay, what if there is no God? People lurk in the darkness. They suck the blood out of, uh, you know, like uh, the, the vampire man, for example, sucking the blood and, and, and looking at uh, uh, young women as prey, using them and then tossing them aside. And today, you know, I, I talked about uh, the Twilight series, and one of the new things in the Twilight series is that the, the vampire um, can walk around in the daylight, and when he does, he sparkles and shines like, like this beautiful creature. And it's kind of like this shifted worldview where now that we're kind of secularized and we kind of just believe this, oh, I can do whatever I want sexually, um, the guy who makes a lot of money, the guy who's really good looking, the guy who has has wealth. Um, I remember that that scene in Twilight where he he says, "Look at me, I'm a killing machine. I was built to kill, right?" And that's kind of like the the successful young guy nowadays. Like, you attract to yourself that which you can devour. And it goes against, totally a thousand percent against, a Christian worldview. The modern psychology today, it's kind of funny how, oh, well, we're so much more understanding today than we were then. Really, are we? It's cool. Uh, Last year, my son... um, my son graduated from high school. My dad came up and went to his 50th uh, an- anniversary, or not, not anniversary, uh, graduation uh, celebration, right? And, and they, they both went to the same high school, my dad and, and my son. And my dad was saying that it's funny how back when he went to high school, there was an after-school thing or even an elective, which was skeet shooting. And they had skeet shooting clubs after school. So it wasn't uncommon for a kid to bring a shotgun to school. Bring it to the office, they'd leave it in the office, or they'd just leave it in the, their truck on a rack in the window. Um, and my son today, 2013, in our enlightened, secularized state, will be suspended, expelled, for bringing a pocket knife to school. I mean, a kid eats a Pop-Tart in the shape of a gun nowadays in our school, gets expelled or suspended from school. It's crazy. How did we get here? With a 50% divorce rate plus in some studies in my country, this is the worst time to be a kid in my country. There's more kids today will go to bed without a dad. There's a ton of kids that are that don't even know their father, don't have a relationship with dad. The largest percentage in, in history, since we've been counting it in, in my country, don't have a father and have a, don't see their father on a regular basis at all. The Bible says that God is love. It says that he demonstrates his love by, by saving sinners, by coming into this, this messed up world as a human being on a rescue mission for you and me. The way God defines love is, is getting to know Him. That His energy, His spiritual energy is just radiant love. That's, that's who God is. But the pages of the Bible also have certain rules and, and systems around that. Systems that this world doesn't agree with. Um, God is love. He's a loving father who is after his kids. I believe that with all my heart, even though my life, I I questioned that myself a, a lot of times. I had to work through that. I had to build that relationship with them. I had to understand that where he was carrying me in the really tough times in my life that he had me that he is love 
and that that love will set you free. But in the secular, secularized psychology, we've been given a bait and switch, right? We've been said, you know, we've been told, and maybe rightfully so because of lackadaisical religious people. Um, I was listening to a guy named David Pallison who talked about the fact that we didn't write a lot of doctrine books after Skinner and Freud, you know, and, and this modernized psychological... I mean, these guys had just been given, like, here's how you figure out your life. Here's how you build your love relationships. Here's how you, you know, stop doing behaviors that you don't want to do. You listen to uh, B.F. Skinner or Freud or... Right? It's a bait and switch. Yes, they had some good truths, but they're not going to define love by a kind, loving God who we will have to do business with at the end of our life. William James, Eric Erickson, all these guys, you know, they're all oh, we're scientists. Come to the scientists and we'll help you figure out your life. None of these guys define love the same way the Bible does. Yes, they have good things to say. Yes, there are some cool things up here in level two, I would call it right. Uh, some wisdom we can glean from them, yes. But how you define love will dictate your life. How you think about God will dictate your life. It will, it will change the directions you take, right? It's a different well that you drink from. And listen, with all these little scientific cocktails of psychology that each one of these folks has, um, there's no sin, right? Sin isn't defined um, like the Bible defines sin. It says these are the things we should and ought to do. The Ten Commandments, right? God puts forth the Ten Commandments. Which, yeah, we all broke. But we, are, we start to understand and we can see how to love others better and how to love God better by looking at the, the concept, the theological concept of sin. Every single one of these different um, psychological, again, cocktails have opposing views on what sin is. See, the word sin has been repackaged as the word dysfunction or disorder, right? So, and again, all of these guys have different formulas and different ways that they define this word dysfunction. So what they do a lot have in common though is the self and how you just need to be self-fulfilled and be more about you. And the better person that you are, you'll feel better about yourself. Your self-esteem will go up because you're a better person consumer, you know? It, again, it's these juxtaposed worldviews. The the zombie metaphor, you know, the, the word zombie is a, a Haitian word, means the spirit of the dead, the living, walking dead, just consuming other people to survive. The vampire metaphor, with the vampire just has to, ha has this insatiable appetite for blood. The sexual lust metaphor, you know, thrown in there. One of the most toxic things about that worldview that we see in our culture today is divorce. Divorce, um, it's like the bait and switch that we're given, right? The, the voice in Mr. E's head and in my head is that, you know, if you just go follow that animal lust, you'll, you'll feel better about yourself. You'll be a better person um, because you'll feel better about yourself. You know, you won't be a walking contradiction, right? Some of us feel like there's freedom in that. Like if I could just be this horrible, sinful person, then I'll feel better about myself. And again, that is, that's been a sales pitch that has been set up for decades by a lot of secularized psychology. Does that make sense? See, the the bait on the hook of, of divorce and those thoughts and the reason why a lot of people get divorced is they don't feel like, oh, we've drifted apart or I've fallen out of love because I, you know, I, I believe in a definition of love that is, is something that can be fallen out of, you know, defining love by affection like Freud would 
say. It's just an emotion. It's just affection, right? No, it's not. Defining love that way, yeah, that you're gonna be you're gonna be sold this bait and switch that says, yeah, get divorced, you'll be happier. This you need erotic fulfillment in your life. That's another thing that our culture is. A lot of entertainment is showing nowadays. Um, our pastor was talking about this statistic that said um, nine out of ten uh, times where they show a couple making love in a scene on television today. It's outside of the realm of marriage. Nine out of ten times. So we're sold this, you know, erotic fulfillment. Just chase erotic fulfillment. Get divorced. You know, you'll be happier. The facts are that most people remarry within five years. Because they're not happy. Because that didn't work. And the facts are that those marriages fail. They even have a higher divorce rate than the first marriages. I mean, this is statistic. It was science, right? Social science has proved this. See, it's funny that statistic. How you know, in five years, most men, especially, I think this was really a study of men, get remarried, because in that worldview, there's a walking contradiction, right? Like I thought that just empty sexual fulfillment was going to satisfy me, and it didn't. So guess what? These guys go ahead and they remarry. Augustine said a very opposing worldview to the roots of what these guys believe. He said that we have a soul, that we're not just a body with a mind, but we're a soul with a mind and a body, right? It's not that we have a soul, it's that we are a soul and we have a mind and a body. That's, that's a totally different juxtaposed worldview to what Skinner or Freud or Carl Rogers believe. I'm going to close with this. Um, the letter from Mr. E is real, right? That, those thoughts thrown into our head, producing those feelings is a very real battle and struggle. And I've been there. And by an act of faith, I have learned to measure all things against Scripture. To be a solo scriptor in my theology. And in theology, I, taught, I mean my way of thinking. But I'm going to weigh these things against scripture. Why? Because I can prove, you know, scientifically and all this, that it all works out in the end. Um, no, I'm taking it on faith. I'm taking it on faith that God says what he says in the Bible because he loves me. There was a... a a famous theologian who passed away and they asked him, you know, what's the biggest and most, um, the greatest truth that you ever learned in all of your years studying theology? And he said this, it's from a children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Meditation for the Christian is not emptying your mind, okay? Meditation for the Christian is thinking and dwelling and praying about Scripture. And I'm going to give you another piece of Scripture here. This is, this is the stake in the vampire's heart. All right? Something to write down, something to pray about, something to meditate on. The whole chapter in context, Romans chapter 8, is beautiful. But this is, uh, this is really, check this out. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Um, something to digest. Something to think about. When the tempting thoughts of maybe we're all just evolved creatures. Because of something I learned from a book that's based, even written by a Christian, 
maybe, right? That's based in Freudian psychology or this, you know, positive prosperity Carl Rogers type of philosophy. I'm going to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. I know that God has a relationship with me and has a purpose for my life and, and is showing me and revealing things to me and that He wants me to live in love. And again, my theory is, is we handed over the way that we demonstrate, deal in our love relationships to folks who don't define love the same way that Scripture does that theology does. I love you guys. Uh, I'm going to end the show right here. Some stuff to digest. Until next time. Bye. We are healing But it's killing us inside Can we take a chance Keep smiling